Well, if you have your Bible this morning, and I hope you do, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. As you do, I've been praying about where the Lord would lead us as a church in our next sermon series, and I haven't settled in on something quite yet. A couple of things I, I do know, and I shared with you earlier this year, God has really impressed on my heart to preach through books of the Bible more often. We would do it from time to time, and I kind of impressed on my heart, we need to do that more often. So much of Scripture gets overlooked because it's not a popular passage necessarily. It's not a, a go-to for ministers or pastors. They don't make a pretty sermon slide about certain passages of Scripture. There's not a catchy title, but it's the Word of God, and we need to learn from it. And by going through books of the Bible, it allows us to go through even some difficult passages of Scripture that maybe often get overlooked. And so I know we'll be going through another book of the Bible in our next series. And what I also know is uh, it will be from the Old Testament. Uh, this is something that uh, I think is important for us as a church to make sure we're visiting these Old Testament books. Now, when I went with, uh, with the youth to camp a couple of weeks ago, uh, he was talking about getting into Scripture and reading. And, and some books maybe were good to, to step into and start reading a little bit. And other books were a little more difficult to read through. He threw out the book of Leviticus as an option to read through if you were really wanting something difficult to read. Um, I think maybe Jordan took it on himself to start reading through the book of Leviticus that week. I don't know if he's still on it or how far he's gotten. I can already tell you our next sermon series will not be through the book of Leviticus. So that doesn't mean it's not coming, uh, but it's certainly not going to be the next one. Um, but, but I do find that the Old Testament is sometimes less popular to preach through. Right? It's maybe a little more difficult. Um, there's some good stories in the Old Testament and we like to focus on the narratives and the stories, but so much of the in-between is tough and difficult. Another book I know that I'm not planning on preaching through next is the book of Job, but it's a great example of an Old Testament book that most people are familiar with, the first few chapters and the story of Job, but a study through the entire book proves to be really laborious. So the first few chapters we know of Job being very wealthy and Satan having a conversation with God and saying he only follows you because of, because of how good he has it. And so let me start taking some things away. And the story of Job in the first couple chapters is just that. Everything is taken away from Job. We know the end of Job, 42 chapters later, in Job 42, that God restores him because Job is faithful, and so we know the beginning and we know the end in those middle chapters. Let's tell you what, I encourage you, if you want a really, a really interesting and challenging book of the Bible to read through, it's not going to be one you're going to get a lot of coffee cup verses from, it's not going to be one that you're going to sit and go, that just lifted my spirits, maybe the opposite. Read the entire book of Job in the next couple of weeks. 42 chapters. Those middle ones are his friends coming and complaining and just being jerks for the most part. Um, it's really a tough read. And yet it's the word of God and there are things to learn from. We're going to be going through an Old Testament book. I've got it narrowed down to a couple of different ones that God is kind of uh, leading me towards. And I don't know if it will start next week or maybe uh, no later than the middle of August. I'm kind of praying through and want to formulate where we're going to go. But it's important that we understand the Old Testament in order to understand Jesus Christ and the New Testament. And here's what I mean by that. 
We have 66 books of the Bible. If you want to play Bible trivia this morning, take some notes down so you can impress people later. There are 66 books of the Bible. God wanted to give us 66 books to communicate to us what we need to know. Your handbook for life is contained in front of you in 66 books. We tend to focus on the last 27 from Matthew through Revelation. The New Testament books reveal finally to us who the Messiah is, how we are to ultimately be saved, introduces the church to us, which is where we're at now, and rightly so, there's so much rich, uh, rich teaching in the New Testament. But let's not get lost on the fact that if God has given us 66 books, almost two-thirds of those books not quite two-thirds of those books, close to two-thirds of those books are Old Testament. Almost a full two-thirds are given to us before Christ. And if you go by chapters instead of by books, it's over two-thirds of the Bible is given to us in the Old Testament form. So do you think God wanted us to read and know the Old Testament? Do you think as he's revealing himself to us, he says, I want you to know all about Christ and salvation, and so I'm going to give you 66 books about Jesus Christ's life on earth. Instead, he says, I'm going to give you four books about his life on earth. I'm going to give you another 23 about how the church should be set up and living in light of the salvation of Christ. And I'm going to give you 39 books before he ever shows up to lay a foundation and a groundwork. It's important that we know the Old Testament. And so we're going to do a study through an Old Testament book. I've got it narrowed down to a couple, and we'll announce that in the coming weeks. This morning, I want to stop and look at Jeremiah chapter 31, where I think there's a stark line drawn between Old Testament and New Testament. At least in our minds, there is a stark line drawn. That word testament uh, just simply means a a testimony or a statement from God, an era, if you will. Another word you could use there is old covenant and new covenant. There's this idea that, that God had the covenant with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, and then through Christ, he gives us a new covenant. This is a biblical phrase, and we're going to look at this biblical idea of a new covenant. And in the book of Jeremiah, uh, chapter 31 is the only time in all of the Old Testament we see the phrase new covenant. It pops up a lot in the New Testament, a lot in the the life of Christ, and then the, the beginning of the church age. But in the Old Testament, it's one time Jeremiah uses this phrase, new covenant. What he's telling the people as he's writing this is there was an old way God worked, And there's a way that's going to appear different to you, a new and a fresh start. We're going to learn in in this study this morning that it's not really as different as we think it is, but there certainly is a line drawn between the old and the new. And in Jeremiah 31, we're going to read about the new covenant. Now, the book of Jeremiah, it's important to know, is one of the books that I'm praying and considering going through. We may revisit this passage. Um, I'm not sure whether we will or not, but if you read the book of Jeremiah, here's what you're going to find. The nation of Israel is uh, increasingly wicked, and God has called Jeremiah to tell the people that they're going to be punished, captured, and taken into captivity. And for the first, oh, I don't know, several dozen chapters, (laughs) it's all bad news. You're wicked, you're evil, and God is going to punish you. 
And then you read the next chapter, and it's you're wicked, you're evil, and God is going to punish you. And then you read the next chapter is you've still not repented, you're wicked, and you're evil, and God is going to punish you. And he's telling them over and over and over and over and over again. And so we get to Jeremiah 31, and there's kind of a, a turning point in these 30s of the book of Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 31, we have a good summary. Let's start just in verse, in verse 30. Um, in verse 30, and I'll tell you what, Jody, if you'll click on, um, uh, just minimize that screen. There we go. Or yeah, follow along either way. That's fine. In verse 30, there's kind of a summary of what's been going on so far in this book. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. This is a nice summary of Jeremiah thus far. You're going to die because you're a sinner. Isn't this a good pick-me-up message this morning? We talked in our Sunday school class how so many preachers just preach the good news of things, and we need more preachers that preach the tough passages. Well, here I am, standing up on Jeremiah 31, 30. Here's your memory verse to put on your bumper sticker or your coffee cup. Put it up on your mirror and memorize Jeremiah 31, 30. Everyone shall die for his own iniquity and sin. And each man who eats sour grapes... His teeth shall be set on edge. In other words, you get what you do. You reap what you sow. If you're a sinner, you deserve death. How's that for a pick-me-up this morning? There is then a transition. Somewhere Jeremiah gets a word from the Lord that it's not all doom and gloom, that there's hope. The people of Israel, and I will say the people of the church today, are un faithful individuals we always fall short and we deserve death because of our sin but as unfaithful as we are god is faithful and as depressing of a book that jeremiah is there's a turning point and part of it comes in verses 31 through 34 we're not faithful but god is faithful read with me this glimmer of hope that jeremiah gives beginning in verse 31 behold the days are coming declares the lord when i will make a new covenant with the house of israel and the house of judah not like the covenant that i made with their fathers on the day when i took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of egypt my covenant that they broke though i was their husband declares the lord for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. In the midst of this difficult message that Jeremiah gives, he, he stops and he says, wait, God has given a glimmer of hope, a promise to his people. There is an old way that God dealt with you, but there is a new way that God has in store for you. 
And that's exactly what he tells us right off the bat. The only place in all of the Old Testament is Jeremiah 31, 31, where we hear this verse, a new covenant. The days are coming. In the midst of your punishment, in the midst of your sin, in the midst of you running as far away as possible, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This new covenant that is coming is different from the old one. And what we find, firstly, is that it is unconditional. This new covenant is an unconditional covenant. Now, now the old covenant was, was somewhat based on the faithfulness of Israel. Over and over and over again, we hear all throughout the Old Testament, God telling the people of Israel, if you will obey my commands, I will bless you. If you will be obedient, I will make you prosper. If you act a certain way, I will be sure to provide and protect you. Very similar to the way we, we deal with our own children or grandchildren, isn't it? We bribe them, don't we? My mom was here yesterday visiting for a little bit. She uh, was able to, to come and, and spend some time celebrating Josiah's birthdays this week, and she got to give him his gifts, and it was all fun. And, and she confessed something that we already knew, and she said, I'm the briber of the family. I do this with my grandkids. If you'll go and do this for mom and dad, I'll take you to the Dollar Tree. Ten bucks at the Dollar Tree feels like a million dollars to a kid, right? So I did it with my kids, and I did it with my grandkids. If you act this way, you will get this reward. Now, I know you guys have never done that before, right? You guys have never bribed your children or said, if you'll act in a certain way, you'll get a, a special treat. Now, certainly you guys are better parents than I am or my family is. But we have this mindset, right? If you will do these things, then I will give you this. This is honestly kind of a, a way that we function in society, right? You, you go to work each week. If you perform the duties that you're called to do, you will receive a paycheck, this past couple of weeks has been kind of hectic schedule-wise, and Josiah had a, a, a swim lesson schedule that we completely forgot about, just completely forgot. It was supposed to be $10 for a half an hour. Swim teacher showed up, and we just didn't even show up, right? Like, we forgot completely. And so we went and made up for it yesterday, and when we were done, um, I normally, after the half an hour, hand her $10. And, and because of this principle in my mind, if you do your job, then the faithfulness comes. I hand her a $20 bill, and I said, this is for the one we missed too. She said, no, you don't have to do that. And I said, no, you don't understand. You did your part, and you were here, right? We were not. You were faithful. That's not what I said, but the same principle. You did what you were expected to do, and this is the result you should get. This is how the Old Testament covenant worked. God said, you are obedient, and you will be blessed. The problem is, as you read the Old Testament, was Israel faithful? Never. <laughs> they were always messing up. And so that's why over and over again, you see God punishing Israel over and over and over again. You know, another Old Testament book is read through the book of Judges. Israel does good for a while. God blesses them. They get comfortable. They slide back. God sends an enemy to, to punish them. They're in slavery. They're being oppressed. They cry out to God. He forgives them. He restores them. And the cycle goes over and over and over again. Right? Israel constantly fails. And we see some harsh words from God. You know, in in the Bible, God creates covenants which are meant to be eternal. They're meant to be kept by both parties and never broken. And God 
compares his relationship to Israel as a husband and wife relationship. He does it here in Jeremiah 31 as well. And when he compares that relationship, it's this idea that that he will never leave. And yet several times in the Old Testament, what we find is God saying things to Israel like in the book of Malachi, where God says, I I will divorce you, or I have divorced you and left you. Just breaking of a covenant. Why? Because Israel was unfaithful. And so God breaks that covenant. The new covenant will be different. Verse 32, it tells us, Not like the covenant that I made with your fathers on the day when I took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt, when I was faithful to them. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. God says this won't be like that covenant that was broken. This won't be like the covenant where where one party steps back and breaks it and the whole deal is off. There will no longer be punishment and condemnation that comes in the new, new covenant. When this new covenant is made, it will be unconditional. This new covenant means even though the people of God continue to fall short, even though the people of God prove themselves unfaithful, God remains true to his word. By the way, this isn't much different from the old covenant. It's actually very similar, and we're going to talk about how God makes this covenant unconditional here in a moment. It's not that sin goes unpunished. It's not that our our faithlessness does not get punished. It's that someone else takes the punishment on our behalf. It's really only unconditional for you. And so God says, not only is this going to be an unconditional covenant, it's going to be a, a personal covenant. It's a covenant then that is is meant specifically not for a nation, but for a person. In the old covenant, what God did when he brought the people out of Egypt is he brought them to a mountain, Mount Sinai. And they're all sitting at the bottom of the mountain. And as they're down at the bottom of the mountain, Moses goes up to get the commands of God, to hear what this covenant is going to be. God's going to tell us what he expects. He's going to write them all down, and he's going to give them to us. And Moses goes up to the mountain, and God writes himself on these tablets of stone ten commandments that he gives the nation of Israel. And so it is written in a physical, tangible tablet for them to see. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, as God reveals more covenants, more more commandments, he tells prophets, he tells authors, he tells leaders, write this down. Put it in a book so that the nation of Israel will always be able to read it. The whole book of Leviticus is not meant for individuals. It's meant for corporate worship. So if you read the book of Leviticus, what it's really gathered toward is, here's how you as a people are to worship. It's written down. You can read it. You can see it. Do A, B, C, and D. There's a a belief because of some extra biblical things we have that, that we not only have the Bible's written commands, But there are additional books that even today Jewish people use called the Mishnah and the Talmud that expand on these commandments so that there are like 630 some odd commandments that God gives written down that you can read. If you're curious, three times, the only commandment given three times, here's your next Bible trivia in in the the Old Testament is, is this. Do not boil a goat in its mother's milk. So in case you're wondering, 
God wanted you to know three times, do not cook a baby goat in its mother's milk. So write that down. God wants you to know it. He repeated it three times for some reason so that you and I would know these commandments clearly. Right? There's actually a whole reason why God says that. That's not the point of this message. The point of this is God made his commandments specific and clear, and they were written down so that you could read them tangibly and we could get together as a group and know what they are. The new covenant, though, is communicated differently. It's not meant for a group of Levites and priests. It's meant for people and individuals. That's why Jeremiah says in verse 33, For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Where is it that God now writes those Ten Commandments, those 630-some-odd commandments, the things that God wants you to do and know how you're going to live? Where does God put his covenant? Not on a tablet, not on a paper, but he writes the law on our hearts. No longer is it meant only for a corporate setting where we all get together and read and figure it out. It's an important part of learning what God wants you to do personally. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to talk to God, you went to a priest. If you wanted to, to worship God, you went to a temple. If you wanted to communicate with God, you spoke to some religious authority and told them how you wanted to express yourself to God. Because those commands and those laws and those, those things to do were given to someone else written down somewhere else. In the new covenant, God says, you can come directly to me. You have the law. You have the commandment. You have the truth written on your heart. It's a personal covenant. But then third and finally, Jeremiah tells us that this is a comprehensive covenant. It covers everything. 630 some odd laws sounds like a lot, but you know there was still a lot left and a lot of gaps that weren't there. That's why you have the Talmud. That's why you have the Mishnah. That's why you have these extra works that have literally thousands and thousands and thousands about command, uh, of commandments. That's why you have groups like the Pharisees in the New Testament who have created all of these rules and laws to fill in the gaps because every time there was a law created, Israel found a new way to break it. Every single time. Just like with your children, when you tell them not to do something, they find a way to do it without doing it. You know what I'm talking about, right? Don't touch that. So they don't physically touch it, but they take a stick and they poke it, right? right? That, that's, they've not touched it, right? So, they did, so you create a new law. Okay, don't touch it with something you're touching. And then they start blowing on it, right? And they're, I'm like, okay, don't even touch it with the air that comes. And you went from one rule, one commandment, to three commandments and three laws. And it's never enough. This is not just children. This is human nature. We find ways to break laws and rules. I love a, a picture that circulated on, on Facebook of a kid who was told that he was not allowed to play his games outside. He had to go outside and play, and he wasn't allowed to play his video games outside. So there's a picture of him with the door open and the back half of his body laying outside, like his mother told him, playing his handheld video game inside the house. Right? Technically, he didn't break the rule. 
And so another rule's created, and another rule's created, and another rule's created, and it's never enough. The Old Testament took 39 books, and even still, there are commands that we have figured out a way around. We're missing the point. The Old Covenant was was very thorough, but it was not comprehensive the way the New Covenant is. The New Covenant covers everything because the New Covenant eliminates the guilt and the sin. Look in verse 34. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of these to the greatest. Think about this. There's a time that will come in the future life where there will be no more evangelism. There will be no need to lead anybody to Christ because everyone will know the gospel that will come in the next life. Everyone will know from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, completely comprehensive, and I will forgive their iniquity, their sin, and I will remember their sin no more. God doesn't just say, I'm going to to wipe away or erase. He doesn't just say, I'm going to to do away with some of your sins. He says he's going to forget them. And this is a biblical concept I cannot wrap my mind around, but it's so beautiful to me. My, My children are imperfect children. I don't know if you knew this or not. I love them to death. They're not perfect. They're PKs, so they get used in sermon illustrations way too much because they like to break rules just like every kid likes to break rules. And the truth is there are things that they have done they've come and said, Dad, I'm so sorry, and I've forgiven them, but I can remember them, and that's why they get inserted into sermons, right? I can't, un- for, or I can't unremember the things that have been done, as much as I would like to. There are people who have hurt us. We can forgive, and it's so hard to forget. I wish we had that supernatural power just to say, remember it no more. So we carry things with us that are, that are burdensome and difficult and hard, and yet we look at Jeremiah 31, and God is not that way. God doesn't look at us and say, burn me once, shame on you. Burn me twice, shame on me. God says, burn me as many times as you want, because I don't remember you doing it to begin with. God has a supernatural capacity, not just to forgive your sins, but to wipe his own memory of it. Does that mean God is forgetful or God somehow has ignored? I, I, I can't say that. And I don't think there's a good theology to say that God is, is completely and totally um, just wiping his own mind like in Men in Black, erasing his memory. Here's what I know. God treats us in a way as not just that it's been done and forgiven, but that it's never been done before. It's so comprehensive, the forgiveness of the new covenant, that there is not even a trace of guilt and sin that we carry into the throne room of God. The new covenant is so full and so comprehensive. There's one of those little sinners right now. The grace of God is so full and comprehensive. When we come into his throne room, God doesn't say, I remember this. And I'm never letting you do that again. The new covenant says it's gone, it's erased, and it doesn't exist. This new covenant is different from the first covenant. The first covenant said you're going to mess up and you're going to get punished. You deserve it. 
The, the old covenant says if we work hard enough, maybe we can earn something to get a respect and an honor from God. The, the old covenant says, says the people as a group together will be punished for each other's sins. The new covenant says it's perfect, it's unconditional, it's comprehensive, and it's personal. If there's anything we can learn from Jeremiah 31 this morning is that God has no desire to punish you for your sin. God has no desire for you to sit there and say, I'm just a horrible, awful person. God's desire is to erase your iniquity and remember your sin no more. And Jeremiah doesn't know what this new covenant is going to look like completely. You don't see the name of Jesus Christ anywhere in the Old Testament. You don't, you don't read about the name Jesus until you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But we know what this new covenant is. Instead of God saying, I'm going to just overlook sin as if he's unfaithful as a judge, God says, I'm going to punish somebody else for your sin. So when you're disobedient, you will get punished, but that punishment gets deferred to the person of Jesus Christ. When you fall short, I'm going to put that on your record and immediately transfer that over to my own son, Jesus Christ. So that every time you mess up, instead of God looking at you and saying, it's you and it's your fault, God looks at you and says, what sin? You're clean and you're perfect. The new covenant is a way for us to say, God, I know that I fail and I want you to take my failures and place it on someone else. The miracle of the new covenant is that that's exactly what God does. So this morning, as we think about the Old Testament, and how different it is from the New Testament, can we be reminded that all 39 books of the Old Testament were just setting us up for a better covenant, a better position, a place for us to be able to completely and totally and comprehensively give up our sins, nail them to a cross, and be completely forgiven. Can we pray together? Father, this morning as we come before you, we confess that we sin over and over and over again. Father, if we lived under the, the old covenant rules of the Old Testament, we would constantly be under uh, oppression and slavery, persecution because of our own doing. Lord, we confess to you that our lives are completely and totally full of failures. Or like Jeremiah 31, 30 tells us, we're reminded that our own sin deserves death. Lord, I, I pray this morning that we would, not, we would not join ourselves with an old covenant, but we would be reminded of a way that you have provided complete and total, comprehensive, unconditional, perfect salvation through Jesus Christ. Lord, this morning as we come before you, we confess our sins and ask that you would take our guilt and place it on the cross. Lord, we submit to you knowing you know what's best for our lives. Lord, let us worship you as a God who completely forgives and even forgets our wrongdoing. It's in your name we pray. Amen.